Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Atul Gawande. I'm a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. I'm also a professor at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and Harvard Medical School. And um, as the club continues to host virtual events, they're also grateful for the continued support of their members and donors. Visit commonwealthclub.org to learn more about membership or to support the club right now with a tax-deductible gift by clicking the donate button on your screen. It is my pleasure uh, today to welcome Andy Slavitt. Uh, Andy is the host of the In the Bubble podcast and most recently was President Biden's White House senior advisor dealing with our COVID response. He has led many of the nation's most important healthcare initiatives, serving as President Obama's head of Medicare and Medicaid, and overseeing the implementation and defense of the Affordable Care Act. In his new book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Andy offers a behind-the-scenes account of how the pandemic unfolded and what can be done to mitigate the next health crisis. Just a reminder as we go along, if you end up with a question for our guest, please submit those in the chat. Andy, welcome. Where are, you, where, where are we reaching you today? I am home now. I am home in California where my wife and I moved as we're now empty nesters. And there are two parts of California. You're in Southern California, isn't there? The official <laughs> Southern part of California, yes. You're, you're right. um, you know, where I wanted to start is I've gotten to know you for a, for a long time now, and you're just so damn interesting. And you, um, you've navigated almost every part of healthcare uh, and there's a puzzle of, you know, who are you anyway? <laughs> um, and this is, you're, you're a Ivy League trained guy who went to McKinsey, to Goldman Sachs, became an insurance executive, grew Optum into a major force. Um, then went, your dive into government was to rescue healthcare.gov. You became a critic of some of the for-profit industry in healthcare. You was, as I mentioned, administrator of Medicare and Medicaid. You came out, you've started a venture capital fund for startups seeking to change the way we practice medicine or deliver medicine. You've been a policy fixer at all along the way. You're a Twitter maniac with an incredible following. Um, and, and, and I find one of the most informative uh, feeds there is on keeping up with what's going on, especially during the height of the pandemic. And then you were a COVID deputy in the White House. So who are you? What, what has been motivating you? Is there a thread that can possibly connect all of that? Well, it's kind of a funny question coming from a surgeon, author, um, kind, of, um, the, kind of the premier chronicler in the US, of the U.S. healthcare system. And I could go on and on about all the other things you do. So... Um, that the uh, the who am I question is uh, is I could go right back at you a tool with that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess I've always felt that if you're going to be in healthcare, 
and you're not taking care of patients, you better damn well be helping the people who take care of patients, take care of them better, or you're just overhead. Um, and I'm not a doctor. No one would want to come see me for their medical care or medical advice. Um, so I have a I have a big burden uh, to play because all those things you described are just basically overhead unless I'm productive and getting stuff done. So, you know, the, the, the thing that I most warms me when if people think of me this way is as a helper, as um, and it's in, in the Fred Rogers frame of look for the helpers when things are tough, um, show up when things are tough and lend a hand. And that's what motivates me. And that's what I love to do. I got into healthcare, um, not because I wanted to, but because when I was 31, my roommate from college um, had numbness. No, he was a who was a doctor, and it was in healthcare. Had numbness in his arm. Um, two one-year-old babies, and he died uh, of a brain tumor a few months later, and it wrecked his widow, who came to live with us. And uh, that sprung board me onto a series of things, which led me to say, I just want to make healthcare better for people. And from whatever privileged position I sit in, um, I've gotten to work on some really big problems, as you said. Well, the the um, you've made the choice at multiple junctures to go for very big projects and uh, and decide to tackle them through you know a lot of, with a lot of different tools. This time, the tool you decided to pick up was a pen and to write this book and to put a a lot of time into writing a really well written, uh, gripping kind of juicy book with lots of behind the scenes stories. Why did you decide that that is what you needed to do? Uh, when you did it therapy basically (laughs) Um, you know i mean you know how this is when you know you're i i picked up the phone uh, i mean i've sort of become a pick up the phone person if i see a problem right so um it kind of went like this donald trump said he was going to open up the the country on easter sunday when the virus was raging and i considered that to be a kind of a mass death event i mean and we end up in the book referring to it as the Easter Sunday massacre. And I wanted to prevent that. And I thought it was nonsensical as did a lot of people, because I thought we was the exact wrong time to put a bunch of older people elbow to elbow inside a, a room and have them sing. So I called Jared Kushner, who I didn't know, uh, but we knew of each other. And he was gracious enough to take my call. And so began an ongoing dialogue with him and others in the White House um, as I watched the, everything unfold. Uh, and so his story, you know, my verbatim interactions with him, with Deborah Burks, and the kind of arc of the last year felt like things that should get out. But I also tell the story of a guy named Ahmed Aden, who's not as famous as Jared Kushner, but he works in an Amazon warehouse. Um, and he got COVID and had the um, quadruple pleasure of getting sick, um, having to lose uh, pay from Amazon. Um, not being able to afford health care, not being able to get access to a test, lived in a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, his wife and his four kids, who lived, five kids who lived with him, had to move into the other bedroom. And um, unfortunately, there were millions of people like Ahmed Aden, and that story wasn't well told either. And I felt telling his story and telling these stories together that smart people would pick up the book, read it, and get a real sense for what the issues were without me having to hit him over the head with it. That was my hope. It's an unusual book because in a sense, it's a piece of journalism because you're telling these stories of, of many actors from, uh, from this warehouse worker to Jared Kushner. 
But the interesting thing is it's not a journalism story because every, every story you tell is of people that you actually were trying to help, um, whether it was reaching out to help Jared Kushner or reaching out to help you know, a friend or a warehouse worker or whomever, and you're just trying to connect the dots for lots of people. And I think in some way, all of us were trying to help somebody along the way in this. You, uh, this is a book that really excoriates Trump. I said you could have called it outrageous <laughs> and not just preventable because I, I was, you know, reliving a sense of just disbelief and sometimes outrage as I was going through it. But I wonder if there's an episode for you that is emblematic of what you felt to be uh, a leadership failure um, that that you know we went through last year or or a, a scene from the book because there are many, but um, there might be some that represent the larger picture. Right. So let's be clear what we're talking about when we say preventable. Pandemic wasn't preventable by the United States. Donald Trump didn't cause it. I'm also very forgiving of honest mistakes. Mistakes where people are trying, operating with the best information they have at the time in the fog of war, um, that are performing their job with empathy and uh, passion and commitment. I am very generous, and we should all be generous about those kinds of mistakes. But I'm not forgiving of mistakes that are made because of ill intent and that are what I would consider to be more of the dishonest variety. And Trump made made several of those that we know of that, that cost lives. And I think um, it's important from a standpoint of accountability that we have that conversation. Now, I would say that this was not the only cause there were many other issues that went on, but Trump's leadership in specific, um, you know, for, for one, of course, we know he denied the existence of the virus. It is power to deny reality and try to get his, his followers to deny reality is something that he's hang, hung on for a long, long time. And I think he thought by doing that, um, he could alter the way people looked at the virus. And the reality is if he would have simply said in January when he knew that, hey, guys, we have a problem here, we have a problem. Hundreds of thousands of people would have taken action and spared their own lives and the lives of their family members. The fact that he went to bed every night and went to sleep apparently like soundly between then and the time that the NBA uh, stopped their season and that resulted in the stock market crash. But, you know, the fact that that's what it took, you know, tells us something that um, we would have been uh, a lot better off. And, and from there, I think there were a number of incidents that I found in this conversations where, you know, he quashed any kind of dissent. And, in, and when you have a scientific phenomenon going on that you can't observe with your naked eye, right, asymmetric growth, um, um, asymmetric, I mean, uh, asymmetric spread, uh, exponential growth, those are things that defy our ability to understand them. So we need scientists to help explain them. And when he basically said, Look, if anybody is coming out with a different point of view than that this whole thing is overblown, they're going to be summarily silenced or fired. And, and there was one moment in the book where Alex Azar was going to go on Fox and Friends, and he planned to say the words, um, things are fine, but could change rapidly. Now, first of all, things were not fine. But the fact that he simply wanted to say, but could change rapidly, caused the White House to pull him from Fox and Friends and then forbid HHS from talking to the press or the public for 45 days. So just think about this. Like we're having a, we're having a pandemic and our department of health and human services is forbidden from the white house from talking to us. Um, that th those are the kinds of things that are above and beyond 
kind of honest mistakes. I remember talking to a um, North Dakota public health director in mine at North Dakota as they were going through this. And she talked about how, how, you know, she'd been in that role for two decades and said, and, and had been through pandemic preparation for virtually every aspect of this. And she said, I was trained, I was ready, but there were, except for one thing that I was not prepared for, which was that, um, that the public would be told that the, that the pandemic does not exist, that this is not a problem. And dealing with a public that therefore was divided over whether this exists at all was not in the playbook that, um, that she was prepared for. What, what made that possible? Like, I never would have thought that attacking doctors and scientists about whether a problem exists or not would succeed. But then I would have said that attacking the NFL would have been even less likely to succeed. And President Trump was successful at doing that. What made it possible for, in other words, it's not just the force of this person. What, what, what made it possible for this to land and stick? Right. I mean, my, my reading of Donald Trump is not that he comes up with these original ideas, but, it, but more that he's a populist. He tests what plays well with his base. He tests through Twitter. He tests in his rallies. Um, and so um, he, um, th so there is something about our country, and I think this is where you're going, that makes us skeptical of expertise, um, that makes us um, more willing to take a cynical explanation. So if Tucker, if, if um, the easiest thing to do would be if we sat here now and decided to go look at any public official, Tony Fauci, anybody, and say, let's go find the thing sometimes when they were wrong. Now, you can do that in good faith and have a conversation, and Tony Fauci would say, yes, I said what I knew at the time, et cetera. But the, there's another phenomenon that goes on, which is when someone says, that expert doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, therefore, I'm just as smart as they are. And that happened over and over and over again. And we were susceptible, not all of us, but, but we were susceptible to that kind of, of shenanigans um, in, in, uh, in our response. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a deeper set, it's a deeper set issue um, as, as are some of the other issues we saw, the, the gross inequality, the way race played out. I mean, you know, almost everything that sort of ties up the fabric of this country, good and bad, um, we saw reflected in some respects in how this pandemic played out. And that's where, and part of, yes, why I wrote the book, I'm eager, not for the next pandemic, I'm eager for us to say, we learned some things about our country that we could fix today. And we learned that there's enough, so many kids that don't have internet at home. We learned that there's a lot of kids that don't eat lunch unless they go to school. Well, that was true before the pandemic. It was true during the pandemic. Now we get to decide whether it's going to be also true after the pandemic. And I don't think the moral of the story is let's prepare for the next pandemic. I think the moral of the story is someone's hitting us over the head, telling us, hey, guys, there's something about your country that you can readily fix. And that's where I think we need to be focused. You know, it's interesting Andy, um, healthcare has been in the middle of our politics now for um, uh, well over a decade. Um, first, and 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 you could run against um, 
universal health coverage and uh, Obamacare and, and the ACA. At this point, that's the Supreme Court has sort of taken that off the table. They, you know, ACA is the law of the land and, and, and it is every indication it will reign the law of the land and it's no longer the thing to punch at. And instead, the interesting thing is that Tony Fauci, who is uh, most single-handedly responsible for the creation of the vaccines that brought us out of this pandemic, is the single most popular attack point for anybody who wants to run as, uh, as the next presidential candidate for the Republican Party. How is defiance of science and defiance of the public health response the defining feature of the next presidential candidate? What, what, how does, I, it, I'm, I, I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around how that has become so powerful that, that it's more effective than anything else that candidates want to define themselves around. You know, so I try to tell this story in, in the most personal way I can. And so I don't try to wax eloquent because I don't think I'm smarter than the next bear about like public health. But I do tell the story I mean, you think about, you know, people, you know, in public health, they don't get paid what surgeons get paid. Pharma companies aren't giving him um, billions and millions and millions of dollars to do research. They're not getting big grants. Um, you know, they're, they're not focusing on the acute problem of the moment. Um so, so you, a guy like Trump comes along, and not just Trump, but and can say these people are irrelevant, and they get and they get rusty, and they get underappreciated, and, and it's just sort of not the thing to do. And the people that are, are do who do it for a living are phenomenal people. They're passionate. It's a labor of love, um, and they're underappreciated. And then I, you know, I make the comment that if you sit, if you happen to sit next to one of them at a dinner party, and they tell you that there's a pandemic coming, you know, your first thought is, okay, how do I get my seat changed? Because you know, this person is crazy. Um, and that's what they've had to put up with um, for, for a long, long time. So there's an, there's an endemic thing here. Um, now, the Tony Fauci thing is quite interesting because you know Tony, as I do, and as, as maybe many people who are, who are, who are f following this are, you know, and, and I just want to know, like, if you're going to say fire Fauci, then just tell me, I want to answer three questions for me. Number one, what were you doing on January 11th? Because Tony Fauci and his team were downloading the sequence of this virus. What were you doing on January 13th? Because on the 13th, they were they connected to Moderna, and Moderna was actually began working on a, on a vaccine. And what have you been doing the last two decades? When when Tony Fauci in 2005, under by the way, Democratic and Republican presidents alike, all of whom were supporters of science, um, said let's in, let's put basic research dollars. And at a public-private partnership behind the um, mRNA platform, and you know, thank God for that foresight. So, if you're going to fire Fauci, maybe you want to be accountable for what the heck you did um, to prevent this pandemic. And you know, Rick De Ron DeSantis is now saying we fight for we vote for freedom over Fauciism. Now, I don't see Rick San Rick uh, DeSantis, Ron DeSantis. I don't see Ron DeSantis declining to use the mRNA vaccine that Fauci created. So, you know, all of us ought to have, I mean, look, this is a very tense time in our history. Politics aside, you know, we've all gotten ourselves wound around the axle uh, and, and, and upset and angry and wanting to point fingers. And, 
you know, the best thing we can do is be a little bit more generous and forgiving of the fact uh, that we've come through a hard time, um, that um, we are fortunate to have some of the great people we've had on the wall, but they're not going to be perfect every time. And when they're not perfect, that means the burden falls to us as neighbors, as people who live in this country to take care of one another and look out for one another. And that's, uh, and so there's messages in here um, for all of us and finding fault and pointing fingers and, and all of that um, to, um, uh, we just need to examine, in my view, the things that happened, the good and the bad, and figure out how to become a better country as a result of it. Well, in, in the course of the storytelling, it's so easy to um, uh, focus on the leadership failure, but there was more. And one of the points you make is that um, is that uh, it, it that, that there are roots to our failure to have captured this virus early, to have been able to adopt basic mitigation strategies through the whole of 2020 that had roots that predated uh, Trump. Um, can you talk a little bit about the ways in which we were all at fault? Yeah. And, and look, I don't know that I want to say we're at fault, but I would say there's things where I have to look at myself um, and, and say, you know, what can, what can I do and what can we all do differently? You know, we defined as a country, you know, more than half of the country as essential workers. So many of us, and look, there's a dirty little thing that people don't want to talk about. And I have a chapter called the room service pandemic. There's a whole bunch of people who myself included don't want to say this because it's not polite, but the pandemic was not a major, major hardship for, yes, we, we missed events. My, both my kids, Mr. College graduations, one Mr. High school graduation, uh, all that stuff. But, you know, I, I was home, I was safe. Um, I could be home. I didn't get paid by the hour. I had enough savings to last through the pandemic. And then I could order Netflix and Amazon and et cetera. The problem in this room service pandemic is on the other side of Amazon and, um, you know, DoorDash and everything else, there's people growing crops. There's people driving trucks. There's people working in meatpacking plants. There's people working in grocery stores. There are people delivering those meals every day, putting themselves at risk, like Ahmed Aiden, the, the guy in the Amazon warehouse. And um, often they're people of color, often they're lower income. Um, and often we would more than gladly expose them to us not wearing a mask or, or, or weren't thoughtful about that. And I think there's this thing that went on where once people felt relatively safe, um, it became a little... Once, once people were more assured of their own safety, it's a human impulse, um, we became a lot less focused on those big numbers of people. And at one point in the book, someone says to me, hey, Andy, I don't know anybody who's died of COVID-19. And it was almost like an accusation. And I wanted to say, you know, you've never been to Albania. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But it's because we, it's because we are, are the way our society is structured. And, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about freedom there's also an argument to be made for, you know, what do we as a society owe one another? How do we help one another? Where are we willing to draw the line? And if someone says to us, hey, you can save people's lives by making small sacrifices, um, that's something that almost everybody I know would, would do in a heartbeat. And I think about it this way, Mike, you know, like 
I know your relatives, my relatives, my grandmother came to this country in 1908. She had, she lost seven brothers and sisters. She lived through a 10 year depression and a six year world war. There were days, there were weeks, there were months when she didn't have hot food or hot coffee. And if I don't get my Starbucks dark roast in the morning, I can get cranky. Like if I went to Starbucks, they were like, sorry, we, you know, we're out of coffee. I'd be like, what is going on here? So we are used to as a society getting what we want when we want it. And if I said to my grandmother, I can't wear a mask because it's for other people, she would have probably smacked me upside the head. So I don't say this to blame people for their response. I do think it's worth reflecting on how everything we've set up, how, how kids, school, um, race, people getting paid, people getting and losing health insurance as they did, as they lose their jobs, our attitude towards science, how all of those things played out and what we might want to do about them. It's one of the one thing I've come to think is that this virus was uniquely well designed to divide us in the sense that 75% of the transmission was through people under the age of 50 and 93% of the deaths were in people over age 55. We needed the people who were least harmed to take the most action to save the people who were most harmed. And then you add on top of that, the divisions by race, which meant that some communities were hit massively hard and saw most of the deaths, especially in the black and Hispanic communities. And then you had other communities where um, uh, they really saw the disease last and had the lowest levels of deaths often in the, our, our most rural areas, although in the fall, those, those became the ones that were hit. And I wonder if you think that makes sense. Very astute observation. I completely agree with it. And we're seeing the same thing now with, with vaccinations. If you just look at people over 30, over 70% of Americans have been vaccinated. And if you look at people as they get older, it's even higher. We understand that. We understand why. If you look at people under 30, that is not the case. I think we're, um, you know, we're, we're, if you look under 25, you know, 18 to 25, I don't think we're even at 50, 50. Um, so um, there is, uh, there is something that's in, that's in the book, which says, and look, this is somewhat of a loose correlation, but the two types of countries that seem to do better uh, at dealing with pandemics are one countries that have been through a public health crisis before. They just have the muscle memory. And two, countries that have a more egalitarian common good, First, which I measured by looking at just the differences between the top quartile and bottom quartile incomes. Those that have very wealthy and very poor, where it's harder to empathize with one another, did much, much worse on a death per capita basis. Um, Brazil, the US, Russia did far worse than countries um, in East Asia or in Europe that had a much more um, egalitarian society. So, you know, are there lessons in there for us? You know, I think there might be. Well, it's interesting. Your first factor, for sure, the fact that um, that that East Asia saw MERS and saw SARS led to a much more rapid reaction by China, by Hong Kong, by um, uh, Taiwan, by Singapore, by South Korea. Do you think that despite all of this division, that's us, uh, you know, when the next one hits? I think we'll get better at some things. So 
um, we have a, um, you know, we, we are no longer the wealthy nation that's on an island that feels like we're going to get protected from the world's problems. It was like when 9-11 hit us and we were no longer immune to terrorism. So I think there is some impact for that. Um, I do think psychologically, though, there's an unanswered question, and I'd, I'd actually pose it to you to do what you think. In, in my mind, it, it's whether this will go down in our memory as more like the crack epidemic or more like the opioid epidemic. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the crack epidemic was happened with criminals and, uh, and, and, and people who should be put, who were, who were therefore put in jail. And we didn't have a lot of empathy and, and we, yeah, we, our rhetoric was that they, these are criminals instead of these are hard hit minority communities. Exactly. Whereas the opioid epidemic, we, that happened to all of us. We felt like we were victims of, of this evil drug company and we had empathy and we started setting up treatment programs and we started talking about addiction and mental illness because we felt like it happened to us. Now, whether you agree with that or not. From, from the white perspective, yes. But right, for, exactly. So if this goes down as the, as the thing that happened to racial minorities and older people, and uh, then I think our policy response will be less forceful, less change, less, less empathy. If we feel like this happened to us and it shakes us to our roots, that might change us more. One way to tell is to look at the American Rescue Plan. There were two features in the American Rescue Plan, the child tax credit and additional subsidies for healthcare that really are in many respects, permanent type of answers to help people who are living in the edge with no safety net, no, and, and living in poverty and, and, and affected by this. And you can say on the one hand, this is great because it passed. On the other hand, we all have to be acknowledge the fact that it passed with a single party vote and it only passed for a two year um, timeframe. So if two years from now or within the next two years, we come back on a bipartisan basis and say, whether it's that or things like that, that need to be a permanent part of uh, our architecture, because those are the kinds of things that will help us, then I feel optimistic. But I don't know that I'm, I'm yet at the point where I can feel that optimism. The um, I'll just say to our audience uh, that um, I'll be talking to Andy. I have a few more questions for about 10 more minutes. Please go ahead and answer, uh, ask any questions you like in the chat, and we'll welcome your uh, contributions and uh, uh, chance to talk to Andy. Um, Andy, you know, I do see some glimmers of hope here. We missed the opportunity to contain uh, the, the virus. Uh, we then missed the opportunity to test for it and to uh, respond and snuff it out while it was small. Then we missed the opportunity to use masks to fully control it. But we didn't miss the opportunity of vaccines. It was perfectly possible that we could have been politically divided on vaccines. But instead, GOP officials did not attack the vaccine, unlike masks. There is, uh, nonetheless, that there is divide um, with the most undervaccinated populations, interestingly, being people of color on the one hand and conservatives, especially rural conservatives, on the other. That means that um, we're talking about a nation where our overall vaccination rate for adults varies from 45% in parts of the country to 85% in other parts of the country. And yet we're not 
at war with one another about whether to vaccinate. So I see a glimmer of hope of that and, and a way that we can move forward over the next six months. Um, what is that opportunity? Where, where, where can we learn a lesson from where we've been to help us close the gap in the next few months? Yeah, well, I think we always do better when we make an effort to understand one another. And if we think of people and we put them in these buckets of pro-vaccination, anti-vax, or even vaccine hesitancy, I think um, we isolate people, we label them. And I think the right way to look at this is, you know, for a lot of us, it took six minutes to decide whether we were going to get vaccinated. We knew we were going to get vaccinated. We we had enough data, closeness to, to this, and understood whatever, for whatever reason. There's a number of people that maybe it's a six-month decision. They want to see what happens to others. They, and by the way, these people are largely, almost entirely not anti-vaccine. They've taken the rest of their vaccines. So this one, maybe because it's new, or maybe they hear it may affect their fertility. Um, but we got to respect their process. And I know that we have this sort of notion of, well, we can't because we've got to get to herd immunity. But if we take a step back and say, you know, these are individuals that are putting things in their body, they're not going to do it for the collective good. They're going to do it if they think it's the right thing. Let's instead focus on respecting their process, letting them get reliable answers to their questions, because the track record of these vaccines is so good that you don't have to do a lot other than say, do your homework and talk to reliable people. Don't go on Facebook. Don't go on Facebook to, to figure out whether you should take the vaccine because Facebook knows that you are not sure. And so they're going to serve you the wrong content. But talk to your doctor, talk to your pharmacist and and take a little bit of the pressure off of that timing. Um, and I think that's one piece of it. There's another piece of it, which is that there are, it, this is mostly in people who are under 25. And for them, you know, I think this is just sort of not that important. It wasn't that important when there was a lot of COVID. Now that there's not a lot of COVID, it's really not important for them. Um, they're not offended by someone putting a needle in their arm, but they're certainly not, it's not on the top 20 of, of things going on in their life. And they never felt a particular risk. Maybe they've had COVID. And so, you know, the, that's really a function of, of, uh, of time. And so, look, do I think eventually it will become routine for most Americans to take this, to be vaccinated from COVID-19? Yes, I do. I, I think it's a matter of time. I think we will get through a, a wave and we'll figure out where the level is um, for now. But I can, I can tell you that it will, it will, nobody will be bullied from here on in into taking the vaccine. Well, I think it's important to pull out a few threads from what you said there, because I actually see some significant hope a lot of attention goes on the people who are the most uh, actively against the vaccination. But um, you point out, it's, uh, there's a, the biggest chunk of people are people who are not actively against the vaccination. It's just not that important for them. And, um, and then, you know, recently there are some maps showing that significant parts of the country have to travel 15 to 30 minutes uh, or more, the majority uh, 15 minutes, um, even in suburbs and in uh, in cities, there are, you know, young people would have to decide to book it, to travel, to handle the uh, 
um, the sign-up process and get in to get vaccinated. And it suggests that if you can make it super easy, you're tripping over vaccine <laughs> to get it, that if you're making it so um, people's questions are answered because people really do have questions and it's coming from a trusted party like your own doctor, um, that your or doctors and institutions you're familiar with, um, that we can get to a big chunk of the folks that are left um, enough that we can really, you know, get the rest of the way to closing this down. What is, what, what would get in our way of being able to do those things? Or is it going to happen? Or is there more we have to do that's not happening? Look, so I think there's going to be a couple of forces, seminal events that'll push this forward. One of them is likely to be when FDA gives final approval of Pfizer and Moderna. I think there's an opportunity to say to people, look, you were on the fence. You wanted to see the evidence. So did the FDA. The jury's in. And and this is an opportunity for you to be assured that the FDA, which is who's had your back this whole time, they pulled Johnson & Johnson for the market for a pause. That, so, so I think there may be another, I don't know, call it 5 to 10% of, of people. I think there are some seminal events in the fall where college students return. Um, and, and I think, you know, what might become common practice is rather than necessarily seeing vaccines mandated, you might see, we'd like you to get a vaccine to consider being vaccinated, but if you don't, you're going to need to show a negative test, you know, maybe three times a week. And maybe that place is only open at 6am to 630 and you create a little friction and, you know, those things, um, will kind of work over time. Um, and then, you know, I think the Delta variant, um, you know, there, there has to be a, th there, there has to be a threat to some extent. And, you know, I'm not into making up threats. Um, I think we ought to be vaccinated and be prepared, uh, in case the Delta variant becomes significant right now. Um, thankfully, um, even though it will become dominant, it, it'll become, it'll become, it's still relatively small, but, you know, those are the kinds of things that could, that could push things, uh, forward, um, as well, um, you know, the fact that we have these solutions. And then I think it's worth talking about that in addition to vaccines um, and, and a really good antiviral um, would be a, another game changer and super high priority. And I think, you know, along with vaccinations and along with global vaccinations, it's probably the third leg of the three most important things we could do right now. Maybe you could um, add one more sentence about one more minute on the antiviral. Uh, what what do you mean by having an antiviral solution for the future that's different from what we have now? Well, so, you know, we have some clinical trials going on right now. And by the way, I don't know how you conduct a clinical trial in COVID right now when you don't have enough cases. So it's a little worrisome. But, uh, but you know, much like Tamiflu, um, something that can be taken at when when symptoms arise and pop up um, that can arrest the virus, not something that you take in severe cases or or taken intravenously or even subcutaneously, but 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 an oral a pill um, that you can take if you're feeling ill and it squashes it. Um, we just put aside three and a half billion dollars to do research, additional research on that, and you know if we could say. You know, you, you might get COVID-19, but if you do, 
um, you know, there, there is a, there's an antiviral you can take and that will really take care of your symptoms. And of course your, um, your, your, your contagion level, that will be another great tool in the arsenal. Of course, not everybody can take the vaccine. So, um, that's, that's important for that reason as well. That certainly would be the game changer, right? Uh, a, especially if you have an oral pill, uh, that you can take a Tamiflu like, uh, treatment that could, um, be a broad antiviral for coronaviruses. So, um, might be effective against almost any variant. Um, and there has, and you point out, there's been a major investment in that line of work. And so, you know, a second round of almost a breakthrough, like a vaccine for the next pandemic and this one. Um, there are a number of questions that have come in on the chat. Let me, uh, let me start with a couple that, you know, mine some territory from the book. One was you really plot out how mask and mask wearing became our cultural divide and, and, and the ways in which leadership affected how that happened. Uh, the question was that came in is how did masks and mask wearing become the defining cultural divide of the last year? So my read of this was some, some version of Trump watching TV uh, or going to a rally. Um, but, but, but we know actually that when he saw what was going on in Michigan uh, and, and Minnesota, where they were people that were wearing um, MAGA hats and carrying signs about masks and saying it was against freedom. Um, it was the day after he had allowed Deborah Burks to issue this grand reopening plan, which said, if you get through all these gates, you can reopen. And of course, nobody was through these gates. And he saw these um, placards and he sent out two tweets, famously, all caps, one that said, liberate Minnesota, one that said, liberate Michigan. And he bit, that was basically his big wink to his supporters. And he's going to listen to these pointy headed scientists and he was with them in spirit. And so, you know, I think, I think that like, again, like any good populist, this wasn't his idea, uh, but he, but it played well. And you saw him, you know, and he, and he, and he, and he would play games with it. Like he would say, Oh, I, I'm going to wear a mask. Oh, I'm going to kiss you. Um, you know, his way of sort of plausible deniability by sort of um, this kind of winking thing um, really exploited things. And I hadn't realized how different that was until I was talking with the head, the chair of the chairman of the national health system in, in England. And we were talking about how challenging things were in England, how challenging things were here. And he said, um, I said, is, is, is mask wearing in any way tied to political party in England? And he said, no. Well, why would it be? He said, look, people don't always love masks. We argue with them. People don't want to wear them. Some, you know, people argue how well they work, which one works best. But by God, if we had to deal with Labor's wearing them and, and Tory's not, he said, I don't even know how to handle that. So he goes, God bless you, man. I don't know how you even deal with that. <laughs> Yes, the, there is an opportunity when you latch on to the urge, you know, embedded in the idea that the virus uh, for people under 50, you're asking them to do something to protect the 90, the 93 percent of deaths over 55. Um, telling people you don't have to sacrifice. It's made up. You don't have to go through this. It's a pain. Um, and, uh, and it's not a significant concern for you. Um, and instead you deserve your freedom, uh, that, and then you tie that to a party that, that where, um, where you don't have a contradiction 
uh, you don't have people contradicting. It seems like an important part of this was the fact that you did not have uh, Republicans who were have been long supporters of science speaking up to contradict this message. Well, the occasions when they did, it was like, you remember when Redfield was in front of Congress at a hearing and he said, this is as important as a vaccine. And he lifted up a mask and people were like, whoa. Um, so my sense of from, from that moment and other moments from and from talking to Burks extensively, which is in the book, is that, you know, the people that chose to stay were either making a Faustian bargain that somehow things like life would be better with them there or, but they had to play by his rules, at least on the surface. And so, you know, called in front of Congress, Redfield could say that, but the guy was the head of the CDC. Why wasn't he saying that every day? Why was that the first time he said that? Well, I mean, this is where it's the science, um, it's the science belief and question. I remember in a very similar way when the hurricane was off the coast of, I guess it was Alabama towards Florida, and the president claimed that the that that the picture of the hurricane was headed in one direction, and the um, and the uh, the agency behind forecasting, I forgot NOAA, um, the leader was asked to redraw the maps or else remove them, and no one would be was willing to speak up to defend our weather maps. Um, at a certain point, when the leader speaks up and people can't contradict, that feels like the dangerous point. Yeah. Yeah. You can't really sharpie a pandemic for very long. <laughs> um, another question uh, that came in relating to the path of the infection was, how many younger people have been infected and do a significant number of them suffer long-term side effects? Not a side effects, long-term effects. You're probably as familiar with the data on this as I am, and the data is not perfect. I will tell you, um, and I've been public about this with his permission, uh, my 19-year-old is one of them. Um, and uh, um, I think, but I think the numbers, I hear 10% or so have, you know, after like 90 days or six months have continued symptoms. Zach had COVID in the fall. So I think we're well, we're well past six months. Um, and he's still, uh, he's still dealing with, um, with symptoms. Um, you know, and as a, as a parent, I would advise you if you have younger kids or, or you know, teens, certainly, and, and kids in their twenties, you don't want to, you don't want to deal with this. I mean, you, you just, you just don't, um, there's, there's no more helpless feeling than your kid asking you, Hey dad, when am I going to get better? And you know, your go-to move is to be able to say when, or, or, uh, uh, you know, everything's going to be, everything's gonna be fine. And when you can't, um, you know, you realize that this, this uncertainty, all that it can cause your kid and, you know, you want them, you know, you want everything to be great. Now, he's going to be fine. He's not going to get in the way of living his life, but there's a lot of people who have it much worse, I'm sure than he does. Yeah, it's a very low percentage of young people who become seriously ill, but young people can become seriously ill. And we saw the development of, of uh, MISC, the multi-inflammatory syndrome of children, which, you know, put, um, uh, put 
hundreds of kids across the country, but not thousands and thousands in ICUs. Um, and, you know, is responsible for a few hundred deaths uh, across the country, uh, numbers that are significant. Um, and then the longer term side effects uh, increase as the ages go up and you get into the teenage years and the younger adults. Um, and, uh, and those side effects can be quite debilitating. There's a lot of hope that vaccination um, is proving to be uh, a kind of treatment for those side effects um, as well. Uh, I hope Zach does better over time and, uh, and, and leaves, is able to leave it completely behind him. Yeah, thank, no, thank you. Um, and he's a, he's a big part of the book because he explains exponential math in ways that um, adults don't, don't get it. And, and, uh, and of course, he was on my podcast and, uh, he, you know, he's, uh, but you know, it's like, it's like his hands are, are um, purple and blue and they're very, very cold. Um, so, you know, there's something going on there. Um, is that going to prevent him from leading his life? No. Does that worry him? You know? Yes. But that, you know, I think that that would be in a, that would be a very mild. I would expect that that's a one on a scale of one to 10 in terms of what people have to deal with. I think it's also an important thing that we're learning about these post-viral effects. You know, I think we haven't talked about long flu, but there there seems very likely to be a significant rate of long flu in younger people as well with similar symptoms to these that are, you know, uh, a, an exuberant inflammatory response leading to a kind of disruption of all of your autonomic system controls uh, affecting uh, your blood flow to your extremities affecting dizziness and, and, um, and your ability to just, you know, feel really normal. And, uh, and so there's a lot to learn that we'll unpack out of this pandemic that is significant beyond the pandemic as well. There are some questions about, you know, the immediate short term and then other ones about the longer term from here, the next pandemic, et cetera. I want to go to one that says, what do you say to people who say, I don't trust the vaccine because the CDC says it isn't effective, 100% effective against catching COVID. No vaccine is 100% effective against catching what it protects you against, right? What do you what What do you say to the to the questions that that people raise? Um, let's start with that one. Well, so first of all, um, if I'm trying to talk someone into taking the vaccine, I already feel like I'm in the wrong, having the wrong conversation. But if I'm explaining to people, as I often you know, dude, you know, one, one of the things say, look, there's um, uh, 7,000 people died of COVID in the last 10 days. And um, what they all have in common is none of them were vaccinated. Um, and the, there's 13,000 people in the hospital right now with COVID and 99% of them weren't vaccinated. So if you do get, it, it is possible that you'll get um, a breakthrough case of COVID after you're vaccinated. It's entirely possible uh, because it's, you know, it's, in the, it's 90% effective. But when you ha when you have that case, it's going to be mild, and if you hadn't been vaccinated, that mild case would have very possibly been quite severe. So the vaccine, um, you know, is doing its job. You know, it's working. Um, you know, it 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 is doing something to your immune system that um, is uh, is uh, is helping you fight it. And um, so so. Um, I think having people with, a, with those sort of proper expectations of of what they're what they're what they're experiencing and what they're doing, um, and then also just being very candid with people 
if people say, are there side effects? You know, the answer is yes, there can be. You, know, you can feel you can feel kind of under the weather for a day. Um, you know, give people the honest information, and um, I think that'll help the process of doing their homework. Here's a question um, uh, that asks: How did people like Jared Kushner feel about the denialism from President Trump and others? Are you at liberty to report? And perhaps you can broaden to you know those who you have been in touch with from the White House and the COVID task force from the Trump period and um, and what they feel about the leadership they saw? Well, I, I tried to write every character exactly as I experienced them in a, in a way, and none of them were the caricatures that I'd read about. Um, they were all complex people. I can assure you, nobody I talked to was sitting around going, I want people to, to, not, to die. Um, you know, they, they prefer, you know, people didn't die. You know, that's not, nobody was quite that evil. Um, but what I found that, that Jared was willing to do things to help so long as it didn't um, uh, it run into the category of adding accountability to his father-in-law. At the end of the day, he was a political operative for his boss. And, you know, to some extent, we're all a reflection of our boss. I worked for a president um, and Biden, who said to me quite clearly, don't worry about making me look good. Give the public the information they need. So my job was easy, right? I didn't have to do this performative stuff. Um, what was interesting was, and in, in, as the, the person who ran the model for COVID-19 was never asked to run a model of a scenario of what happened if we tried to minimize deaths. And she was never even asked to run a model that would, that would contemplate a scenario where the federal government had any ongoing role. So it wasn't even presented to Trump as an option because people knew that Trump only wanted options that placed all the responsibility on the states. And Jared said to me, you know, point blank, Andy, this is brilliant. Trump's going to get credit for opening the economy. And when things go badly, if they do, then that's going to be on the governors and they're going to get the blame and he won't get any of the blame. Now, he was wrong about that. Um, I think I don't think you can escape accountability, but that was the play they were they were running. And so, if I would say to Jared, "Hey, Jared, we got to stop this Easter Sunday thing," and I could submit a plan to do it in a way that was politically favorable to the president, he was all ears. If I said, "Jared, the federal government needs to take more responsibility for procuring testing and investing in testing and allocating testing to states," he said, "No way, not going to happen." The governors will. The governors are all against us. The governors want to want this to fail. They have no incentive if we do this, and they're going to put it back on the president. So it's all on them, and we're not going to do that. So, um, ultimately, um, ultimately, it was clear what was more, most important to them. Two forward-looking questions to the next pandemic. First is, how do you think the U.S. will handle? Uh, the next pandemic, will we handle it well? Are you wonder? Are you worried we will be more likely to overreact or underreact next time? Uh, well, and then there's a second one related to it, but I'll come back. Let's start with that one. So, so we made a series of technical mistakes containing the virus, um, and I think, and we and we had a series of things we were completely unprepared for: not enough PPE, ventilators, etc. Um, I'm going to assume we're going to do better at the technical stuff. But we may not be per, may, not every virus is containable. 
and and it may not be so easy. And so um, we should expect when this comes back that it's we're not necessarily going to be rescued by science. We're not necessarily going to be rescued by the CDC. We're not going that, that we will have to carry some burden. And and that's the part that I think is a big question mark is if it does require behavior change on our part, wearing it, whether it's wearing a mask or avoiding large crowds, um, you know, will we be up for it? Will we do a better job than last time? I will tell you that one thing we have been working on, and we haven't talked a lot about it in the Biden administration is, you know, we, we think we can cut down the vaccination time even further from uh, what we did this time, um, even as quick as nine months. And that's because, we can make investments today in all the various types of potential virus um, vaccines. We can create the manufacturing capacity today. We don't have to use it all. And it has a cost to the country that before today we weren't willing to pay for. Um, we weren't willing to spend, you know, and it's in, it's in the single billions of dollars. It's not in the trillions. It's not in the hundreds of billions. It's not even in the tens of billions, but it's in the singles of billions of dollars a year that, that would allow you to have, in effect, somewhat of an insurance policy to say within nine months, you can have mass vaccination capability for any of the major viruses likely to hit the market. I think we believe that that's an expense the country will want to pay for and should want to pay for. And it also will create lots of jobs and will make us a vaccine arsenal for the globe. And so um, in that respect, I think we'll do well. But you know, we have that mushy part, as we know, which is that interim period where things are on us and our own behavior is going to dictate how this thing spreads. And that's the big question mark. I think we're going to be down, down to our last question here. So I'm going to combine two of them that I, and I think these are great questions. And one is what is what what is one specific administrative action the Biden team can take without legislation that would most prepare us for the next pandemic. And the other one is the sort of parallel. If there's one lesson or one thing you think the average American can do, uh, can learn from last year to be prepared for the next, what would it be? Yeah, those are great questions. And and so since I've already talked about the manufacturing capacity and anticipating and the vaccines, you know, I'll say that in addition, I, I think we probably, you and I would probably both agree that a first-class intelligence system um, to detect and monitor uh, and sequence um, viruses as they occur um, is another essential ingredient, as well as a big investment in a public health workforce. Now, those are not necessarily things to be done by executive action, but the good news is that the American Rescue Plan gave us the money to do those things. So we got to do them. We got to do them well. Um, we'll build. We got to build up a public health workforce. We got to make that a career that people want to be in. Uh, it's a sexy career. I encourage you to encourage your kids to go into this. Um, and and I encourage uh, every company in the country to have a chief public health officer and, and to really make public health integrated into all of the things that we do, uh, because it can't be just the government. It has to be government leading and people following. And, you know, for, 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 for us as, as individuals, you know, it's a really tricky conference. It's a really tricky question. Um, but I would start with, um, I guess I'm say a couple of things and it's not directly on point. One is if you've been vaccinated, in my opinion, the most important thing you can do right now 
is get back the parts of your life that you haven't gotten back that you feel like you lost during the pandemic that are still available to you and take as much joy from those things that you lost and, and try not, if you have deferred dreams, whatever it is, that's the most important thing you can do. If you're not vaccinated, you probably should consider getting vaccinated and then doing those things. Um, but, but I don't think anybody should be obsessing over the Delta variant. If they've been vaccinated there, there are far greater threats in your life um, right now. And this is uh, in the category of a manageable challenge. And then I think, you know, we've got some repair work to do, um, whether it's repairing relationships that got frayed during the pandemic or whether it's um, sort of being, you know, more generous in our thinking about the different experiences that people had during the pandemic where they lost things that may have been different from the things that, 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 that you or I lost. Um, and, and I think fixing the problems that occurred that we saw that the people lived through during the pandemic, if we fix those things now, instead of waiting for the next pandemic, I think, you know, it'll, it'll do a lot of good. Um, and then of course, obviously buying my book preventable and you can get a signed copy of that. If you'd like, um, just go to my Twitter account at a Slavit and I'll, I'll tweet about it. But I think, you know, I don't know how you make it through the next pandemic without the book. <laughs> Well, Andy, thank you for the book. Thank you for um, your first draft of uh, a historical event that will be remembered for a long time. And I hope we all learn from and you've helped us uh, helped us figure out how to learn from it. Um, I want to thank uh, um, I want to thank you. I just want to thank you and tell you that my that, that my publisher pointed out the one mistake I made was since you were kind enough to, to write a nice blurb for the book, I should have made your name in big font and my name in small font. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Um, I'd, I encourage you to pick up uh, Andy's book at your local bookstore. Um, I'd also uh, say that if you would like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Atul Gawande. Thank you and take care. Thank you, Andy Slavin and You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.